Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So Revelation chapter 7, and like I said last week, you may disagree with some of the interpretations that I have come to understand in Revelation, and that's fine. Um, one of the things that we do in, in, in looking at the book of Revelation is we don't ever want to be dogmatic where we say, this is absolutely the way it is, and, there, and if you disagree with my view, you're absolutely wrong. So let me ask you a question. Has any of this stuff happened yet? No. So we're, we're still not 100%. We can't, we can't be absolutely dogmatic on these issues, okay? So one of the key interpretive ways of understanding the book of Revelation is we take it symbolically. Um, there's a lot of symbolism. And so last week in chapter 6, we began looking at the seven seals, and he got to the sixth seal, which was basically the end. If We could have stopped at Revelation chapter 6. You've got the sky, basically the, the, the sun became black, the moon became like red, the stars are falling from the sky, all the people are crying out, and they're, they're hiding themselves from the coming of, of Jesus. And there was that question at the very end of chapter 6, verse 17. And the question is, look there real quick. For the great day of their wrath, who's their wrath? The one who's seated on the throne, that's God the Father, and the Lamb, Jesus. The great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who is going to be able to withstand the final day of judgment? Chapter 7 tells us who those people are. Okay? And it's a very simple question. You know the answer to that, don't you, based upon the whole Bible? Who is going to stand on the final day of judgment? Only those who have faith in Christ. Those that do not have faith in Christ, they will not stand. So there's, there's saved people who know Jesus and there's lost people who don't. So chapter 7 is a highly symbolic way in imagery and vision for John to tell us the identity of those who will be able to stand on that final day. So we looked at this a few weeks ago, but I'm going to go through it again and we're going to go slow because I think a lot of you were scratching your heads last week or two weeks ago. And some of you are like, this is stuff I've never heard before. I've never heard this interpretation before, so I want to go a little more slowly tonight. So in Revelation chapter 7, the way, I'm, the way I understand this, and again, I could be wrong, so I'm not going to be dogmatic. I'm just going to give to you how I understand it. Verses 1 through 8 is the perspective of this group of people who can stand from the perspective of earth, those that are still on the earth during right now and also at the end. Verses 9 through 17 is the perspective of this very same group, but the perspectives from heaven. Okay? 
So I believe that chapter 7 is to be taken as a whole, that John is describing the same group of people told from two perspectives, an earthly perspective and a heavenly perspective, but it's the same group. Now, that is not an interpretation that some people hold to, and I will explain that interpretation. I'll explain why I hold to my interpretation, but let's just read it, okay? So the question ringing in our minds is, okay, the great day of the wrath of God has come. It's final judgment. Who's going to be able to withstand final judgment? Chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Okay. Let's just stop right there. This group of people is sealed on their foreheads. Now, what's a seal? Back in the day, when you had a scroll, when you rolled up the scroll, and you wanted to close the scroll, okay, they didn't have paper clips or rubber bands back then, so what did they do? They took a daub of, why is this saying low power mode? Are you not plugged in? Oh, this is not plugged in. There we go. Sorry, my, my phone was saying there was low power mode. And I'm like, you're plugged in. You can't be low power mode. All right. So back then, sorry about that. Back then they would put a hot dab of wax. Okay, so the hot wax would seal it. And then the king would put the signet or the insignia on his ring and he'd stamp it. And so a couple of things about being sealed, with if a document or a scroll was sealed, um, it meant a bunch of different things back in that culture. Okay, so the first thing that it meant of something being signaled was that um, a seal prevented it from being tampered with. Okay, so if you had a document that had a piece of wax and a seal, you did not have the authority to open it. It couldn't be, it couldn't be tampered with. You couldn't, you couldn't just tamper with it because it's the seal of the king. Number two, it marked ownership. It was the king's insignia. It was, he was the one that, that owned that document. And a seal certified the genuine character of the contents in the scroll. So back then, when documents were sealed, it basically showed that they were protected, they were owned, they were secure. Now, are documents being sealed in this passage of Scripture, or are people being sealed? People are being sealed as servants of God on their foreheads. So let me just throw it out there. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been sealed on your forehead. Can you see mine? Can I see yours? Is it a literal stamp that we walk around with that shows that we belong to God? Or is it a symbol of the forehead being our mind our identity, our face, the fact that we've been sealed shows that God owns us, God protects us, that we are His. 
Now, where else in the Bible do we see this idea of us being sealed? Or who is the one that seals us? The Holy Spirit. Okay? So, and they're all in relationship to eternal security. So last week we talked about, or maybe it was two weeks ago, this whole idea of, let me just write the word up here. It's not in your notes, but I'll write it up here and we'll look at these verses that teach it. We in Emmanuel and a lot of churches believe in what is called eternal security or the perseverance of the saints, whatever word you want to use. But basically it's the doctrine that if you are truly saved, you cannot fully or finally lose your salvation. You're protected. So let me ask you a question. When you become a Christian, who comes and lives inside of you? Holy Spirit. Can the Holy Spirit cease to exist? Once the Holy Spirit lives in you, can He leave you? Okay, now let's look at this passage of Scripture. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him, that's Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, so at your salvation, when you believed in Jesus, you were sealed. See the word there? With, with what? The promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So when you trusted Christ for salvation, the Holy Spirit came and lived inside of you as a seal, as a guarantee, as a promise that you would have eternal life. 2 Corinthians 1, 21-22 It is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Again, the Holy Spirit being that seal. We belong to Christ because the Holy Spirit lives in us. And then Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the Lord depart from iniquity. God knows who are His. So when this talks about these people being sealed on their foreheads, it's a symbol for these are believers who have the Holy Spirit who are protected in their salvation. Does that necessarily mean they are protected from times of tribulation? What did we talk about last week? Are we immune from suffering? Okay. Now, some would say that believers are not sealed before the first six seals could mean that Christians are not to be spared times of tribulation, which the entire earth will experience. Now, let me ask you a question. Will genuine believers who have the Holy Spirit, will we experience judgment? No. As Christians who live on a fallen earth that is sinful, will we experience times of trouble? Is there a difference between times of trouble and God's judgment? Okay? So when rocks are falling on these people and they're crying out, hide me because I'm going to be toast, I'm going to die, what are they experiencing at that time? Judgment. Okay? Now, Last week we talked about wars and rumors of wars and people um, fighting with one another and violence. 
will we as Christians experience some things that happen on the earth? Okay, as those that are sealed, what's the one thing they can't take away from you? Your salvation. They may take away your life. They may take away your goods. They may take away your house. They may do a lot of things to you physically in times of tribulation, but the one thing they can't take away from you is your salvation because you are sealed. You're owned. You're protected. Okay? Now, the reason we won't experience wrath or judgment is because as believers, where has that wrath and judgment been poured out on? Jesus. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God laid upon Jesus our sin, the punishment due. And what does God promise us? In Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, misabuse of that passage of Scripture. Does that necessarily mean that what you're experiencing is, quote-unquote, feel good? Not necessarily. It just means that in the end, God will work out everything for good. Okay, so the first thing we find out about these people before we know anything else is that they've been sealed on their foreheads by God to not be harmed from, from the wrath to come, from judgment. Okay, now I want you to pay very careful attention to every word in Revelation counts, okay? Well, every word in the Bible counts, but look at verse 4. I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribes of the sons of Israel. What does John hear? Says John what? He hears the number of the sealed. Does he see them? He hears them. Just throw that out there. We'll come back to that. You're like, what's he, where's he going? It'll, it'll come back to you. Okay. So verses 5 through 8, you've got 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulon, Joseph, Benjamin. Okay. How do we interpret the 144,000? Let me tell you how some interpret it. Not the way I interpret it, but let me tell you how some interpret it to be fair to the different views that are out there. Okay, Because you've got a number, 144,000, there are those that interpret it as a literal number. So not 139,999 and not 144,001, but literally 144,000, 12 literal thousand from these 12 literal tribes of Israel that are gathered back during the end times and right after the rapture of the church that we kind of talked about last week, the secret rapture of the church, these are literal, a literal number of ethnic Jews that are saved during a period of tribulation. Okay? 
That's the way some people view it. These are literal. It's a literal number. It's a fixed number. It's not a symbolic number. It's a real number. And these are a, an ethnic remnant of Jewish people from these 12 tribes. Now, let me ask you a question about the 12 tribes of Israel. What happened to the 10 northern tribes of Israel? Assyria came in and they got carried off into captivity and they never came back and repopulated Israel. So for all intents and purposes, 10 of the 12 tribes are what? They're gone. Okay. So you have two tribes left in the south, Benjamin and Judah. There's an important date that you need to know in world history. A.D. 70. Does anybody know what happened in A.D. 70? The Roman troops came into Jerusalem and destroyed the city and destroyed the temple. And at that point, Judah and Benjamin lost their identity. So historically, around A.D. 70, you had no more ethnic Israel. They're scattered. They're gone. There's really no way after all these years you can trace your tribe because the ten of the tribes are, are gone. Okay, another question. When you read the rest of the New Testament, do racial and ethnic distinctions between Jews and Gentiles still exist today or was that issue settled in the New Testament? Okay, it was according to Paul, it was settled. Okay, so what makes up the church? Only Jews? Only Gentiles? Jews and Gentiles. So here's the question, who are God's people? Okay, those who have been saved. Regardless of whether you're an ethnic Jew or whether you're a Gentile, those who are. And so in the Bible, especially with Paul, he goes to great lengths to say, listen, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, all ethnic and racial barriers come crashing down. We're all one in Christ. In Romans 2.29, he'll say, a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So if somebody asks you, are you Jewish? What can you tell them? I am inwardly. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, my heart's been circumcised. What do you mean by that? <laughs> you confuse them even more. I'm an inwardly, I'm an inward Jew because my heart's been circumcised. Uh, what have you been smoking? That's <laughs> probably what they're going to ask you. But what does that mean? You are a spiritual, if you're a Christian, you're a spiritual Jew. Spiritually. Okay? Galatians 3.28. Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The distinctions between, what's that? Yeah, I got low battery again. I'm not sure why I got low battery. Let's figure out what is going on here. Thanks for reminding me. Is this, is this plugged in? And this is plugged in? Let's just try something. I got 1%. I'm not sure why I'm not getting. There it goes. Okay, there it is. It beeped. 
Okay, sorry, Facebook people. My phone is, um, hopefully it doesn't, what? No, it's my battery. Okay, back where was I? There's neither Jew nor Greek. Okay, Galatians 6.16. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, upon the Israel of God. Now, that's interesting. In Galatians, who's Paul's audience? Is he talking to Jewish people? Who, who, who are the people in Galatia? Gentiles. And he calls the Gentiles the Israel of God. But here's the most important passage, Ephesians 2, 11 through 14. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, what is Paul saying? Gentiles, you didn't have the privilege. You weren't born into Abraham's family. You didn't have the covenant. You didn't have the Ten Commandments. You were pagans. You were outsiders. You were Gentiles. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that would be us, Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both, who's us, Jew and Gentile, both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So in the church, there is no distinction of race or ethnicity, especially back in the New Testament. Jews and Gentiles are now one in Christ. We're one people. So the question then becomes, okay, if we look at this 144,000, is this a picture of literal ethnic Jews and they only are sealed on their foreheads and they only are the ones that are going to be a remnant and they are only on the earth during a seven-year period of tribulation? Let me ask you a question. Do you see anything in this passage about a seven-year tribulation? Okay. So who is the 144,000? I'll give you my answer and then we can talk about why I came to that answer. I believe it's the symbolic number. Okay, it's not a literal number. It's a symbolic number of the entirety of God's people who've been saved in both Old Testament and those who've been saved in the New Testament from today. So I do not believe that it's a literal number. I believe it's a symbolic number. How have we taken numbers in Revelation so far? Literally or symbolically? Okay, so you need to make a choice when you study Revelation. When are you going to take numbers symbolically and when are you going to take them literally? And if you take sometimes symbolically and sometimes literally, why do you take some sometimes and others other times? Either you take them all literally and be consistent all the way through or you take them all symbolically and be consistent all the way through, okay? You understand what I'm saying? You can't, you can't like, I, I like this symbolically over here, but I'm going to take this literally over here. You're not being consistent. So symbolic number. Now, Let's talk about how this number, why this number is symbolic, okay? And this is not just something I came up with. A lot of commentaries, I think my phone just died. Yep. Well, no Facebook tonight. Unless somebody has a better charger. I don't know. Nope, I know what it is. That thing just broke. Um, 
Does anybody have a, um, an, an iPhone two HDMI or whatever? Thanks, Nick. Yeah, yeah, just the yeah. For, so let me um, tell you what commentators that take it symbolically how they get this. Okay, so I'm gonna. It may be easier to draw this on the board and also at the same time put this on the screen. Okay, so we've got the number three. Okay, so we're, we're talking symbolic numbers here, okay? So three. What do we know the number three represents? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So the number three in the book of Revelation is always in relationship to a number for God. Okay, so it's a number for the Trinity. Okay. Four, so three times four in the book of Revelation. Have you ever heard the four corners of the earth? The four winds of the earth? Okay. Four in the book of Revelation is a symbol for the created order or creation or the tribes. Well, on your screen, the tribes, the peoples, the tongues. The four corners of the earth. Now, back then, are there literally four corners of the earth? Okay, back in the day, before they understood that the earth was round, it's almost kind of like a, like when you have a picnic, what do you, what do you, when, you when you have like a picnic um, blanket and you want to pick it up, what do you do? Pick it up by the four corners and you kind of gather it together. Okay, it's kind of symbolism of taking all the people that are in the earth and picking them up. So four is a symbol for the created Create for, for people all over the earth, okay? So you've got God in his perfection times all tribes, tongues, nations, and peoples that he's redeemed, okay? So go back to chapter 5 for a moment. What does chapter 5, verse 9 say? They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God out of what? Every tribe, language, people, nation. You see the four words there? Jesus, what did, who did Jesus buy? People from every what? Tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Okay, so three times four, God's perfect number times the number of those who Jesus died for equals what? Twelve. Thank you, sir. Hopefully that'll... That'll work. Oh, you got to Cool. Let's see here. Let me take a minute to get itself back up. All right. So three times four mathematically is 12. Okay. What does 12 represent in the Bible? Okay. So in the Old Testament, what did you have in the Old Testament? You had the 12 tribes. So the 12 tribes is kind of code word for all of God's people in the Old Testament. Okay? Okay. What do you have in the New Testament? The 12 apostles. And what did the 12 apostles do? They were the foundation of the church. So God's people in the Old Testament were the 12 tribes. God's people in the New Testament were the 12 apostles. Okay, what is 12 times 12? Okay, so if it was just 12 and it wasn't 12 times 12, it wouldn't include both testaments. Does that make sense? Let's turn this back on.
sorry that these people are going to freak out that there's no Facebook line. We're coming back on, folks. And Okay, we're back on. Good. Okay, so if it was just 12, and not 12 times 12, you'd have half the people of God, right? So you track him with the numbering here. Three is the number of God, the Trinity. Four is the number of all tribes, people, and nations that Jesus purchased. Three times four is 12. Who did God purchase? Well, symbolically, the Old Testament people of God, the 12 tribes, times the New Testament people of God. Okay. So that's, that only gives you 144. Now, the number 1,000 is another number in the book of Revelation. And the 1,000 represents, it's another thing for total, total completion. The New Jerusalem is a complete cube. So 10 times 10 times 10 so what, three is a, a, a number of, of completion? So three times three to the tenth power, the number of thousand represents like a total number of completion. So you see what I'm saying here? So what's 144 times a thousand? 144,000. So, No, it's a cube. No, it's a cube. A, there's only two structures in the Bible that are perfect cubes. The Holy of Holies that was, that was in the tabernacle and the New Jerusalem coming down. If you go to Revelation chapter 21. Right. Can it be a pyramid? No, because it's um, in Revelation 21, 6. It says it's length and width and height are equal. Yeah, it's length and width and height are equal. That can't be a pyramid. It's got a... Well, I'm not a mathematical genius, but I'm just saying. There's a pyramid? Sure. Glenn, you're, you're, you're a builder. If it's 10 by 10 by 10, it's a perfect cube. It's always been a cube. Okay. So the New Jerusalem coming down is a perfect cube. So something that's cubed is tied to the third power, right? Something cubed? So it's perfect. So... This is really difficult. We're making this difficult, but we've got to get to the 144,000. Okay, so the first reason why I, think it's, why, why I think it's symbolic is because of just the way the symbolic numbers are used in the Bible that give us this 144,000. Because the question is, why that number? It sounds like kind of a random number unless you back it out. Okay? Now, another reason why I take it symbolically is the list. The list of tribes. Now you have to go back and know your Old Testament tribes. Okay, so let's just do a little, let's just do a little lesson here. Go back in Genesis. Keep your finger in Revelation 7 and go back to Genesis. Okay, so go to Genesis 49. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna put my I'm gonna put my thing there. I'm gonna write this on the I'm gonna write this on the board, okay? This is not in your notes, but we're just going to go back to the Bible. And this is the list of the sons of Jacob. This is where the 12 tribes get blessed in order of birth. Genesis 49. Genesis 49. Now, I know we're kind of going into the deep end of the water tonight, but I want to just show you. And here's the problem, guys and gals. We don't know our Old Testament as well as we should. The original audience would have known their Old Testament. They would have gotten this a lot quicker than we do. We just don't know our Old Testament as well as they did. What does that teach us? We need to spend more time in the Old Testament. Okay, Genesis 49. Okay, verse 2. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. All right, verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn. So who's the firstborn of Reuben? Okay, who's next? You guys just list them out. Simeon. Okay, who's number three? Levi, right? Okay, who's number four? Judah. Okay, who's number five? Zebulon. Zebulon Pike? No. (laughs) Pike's Peak? Zebulon. Okay. Who's number six? Ephraim, right? Oh, Issachar. Okay, who's number seven? Dan. Who's number eight? What? Gad or Asher? It's Gad. Yeah, Gad and then Asher. Okay, Asher. Okay, who's number nine? Who's number ten? Naphtali. Okay, who's number eleven and who's number twelve? Okay, was Joseph one of the tribes? Okay, Benjamin was the youngest. If you go back and you remember your history, okay, Joseph is blessed, but was Joseph a tribe? Who were Joseph's two sons? Ephraim and Manasseh. Okay, so Ephraim and Manasseh take the place of Joseph. Okay? Yeah, so they're kind of like a one, a one unit there. Okay, so look at that list. Okay, who would you expect to be first on the list? Let's go back to Genesis. Uh, let's go back to Revelation now. If that's the list of the twelve tribes by birth order, now how many women were involved in these? Four: Rachel, Leah, and then the two concubines. So. These 12 kids of Jacob did not come from one woman. They came from four different women. Five. They came from, yeah, they came from, jo- they're, they're his grand, grandkids. Yeah. Okay. So if you looked at that list, go, go back to Revelation. What would you expect to be the number one on the list? Reuben. Okay, so not verse 5, what does it say? 12,000 from the tribe of? So, uh-oh, Judah skips order and jumps up to the top. Why? Yes. Yep. And Judah, even though he was the fourth born, all throughout the rest of the scriptures, Judah is actually the first of the tribes. It's the tribe where David came from. 
the tribe where Jesus came from. So Judah being first tells us, okay, there's something weird about this order. Something's, they're jumping around here. Okay, then you have, all right, look, who's next? Reuben. Okay, well, that makes sort of sense. He's jumping back into the, to the mix. All right, so we've, we've moved Judah to the top, Reuben. You think number three would be who? Simeon, but who do you have? Gad's way down here. Then you have Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, and then you jump back up to Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Who's missing on the list? Dan and Ephraim are missing. Now, you look at this list and say, you go. They have Manasseh, and you said that, that he considered one tribe in the place of Joseph. So could you misread it as they're being considered as one? It could be. Yeah, it could be. So why yeah, did they I mean, put Joseph back on the list then? Why did they put Joseph back on the list? That's a good question. Okay, so. Regardless of how we view the list, this is a weird list. Based upon, it's a weird list based upon how you've seen it throughout the Bible. Okay, Judah's jumped to the top, and this, this tribe is, is like omitted. What happened to Dan? Okay, and Ephraim's not on there. Well, Ephraim and Dan, especially Dan, Ephraim can be debatable, but Dan is definitely not on the list. Dan was the first tribe to commit apostasy. It was the first tribe to go into exile. It was a tribe that was known as the apostates. So there's a tribe of the 12 tribes that aren't on the list that aren't going to be having a 12,000 remnant. Okay? The list is out of order. Number two. Judah is mentioned first instead of Reuben. It makes sense when we realize that Christ was from the tribe of Judah. I've got a note in my Bible that says um, this is a different list from the usual listing of the 12 tribes because it was a symbolic list of God's true followers. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm arguing. So is that... No, I'm, no, no what, I'm going to explain it in just a minute. Okay. Yeah, but your commentary is good. It just it doesn't say enough. Well, it says some more. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Manasseh and Joseph are included, but they were not in the original list of the 12 tribes. Okay. This is the only place in the Bible where we have this particular order. Okay. So let me just, I've given you two bits of information on why I personally do not take the 144,000 as a literal number. Number one, the symbolism of the numbers that lead up to the 144,000, the math. And number two, this weird list. So we've got to ask the question, what does this list... If, if you've got a list that show nowhere else, and, and you can just, you can just like drive past the list and say, okay, there's the 12 tribes and move on. Or you can study the list and say, now wait a minute, this is a weird list. You have to ask the question, why is it listed that way? It's meant to catch your attention to say what's missing, what's not. So here's the question we've got to ask about the list. What does this list tell us 
theologically? What's it communicating to us? Okay. Judas first on the list. That makes sense because these are the people that follow Jesus. He's the leader of the pack. He's the, he's the slaughtered lamb. He's the lion from the tribe of Judah. It makes sense that Judah's first. He's the first one praised. He's the first one praised in Genesis. He's the one that the scepter will not be. He's given the kingly. He's, he's the kingly tribe. Um, now, you may not have, you may not have remembered this. We have the incorporation of quote-unquote outcasts who were not originally in the 12 tribes as far as blood children of Jacob. Jacob's concubines gave him Gad, Naphtali, and Asher. Those weren't Lee and Rachel's kids. Those were the concubine kids. Those were the stepchildren, if you will, the outcasts. What does that tell us theologically about who's included in God's family? Gentiles. Those that are not originally part of the family, if you will. Those that have been adopted in. The outcasts. And the exclusion of Dan and Ephraim, who become the most notorious tribes to lead the nation of Israel into apostasy and idolatry, show that habitual idolaters or lost people will be excluded from the list. So this is a symbolic theological list of the followers of Christ, the Lamb, Judah, of both Jew and Gentile, outsiders and insiders, but not those who are going to not be believers. Dan is considered the worst. Of, well, B Benjamin starts out pretty bad. Like if you look at Benjamin, um, like in the book of Judges, Benjamin's the tribe that causes the, is the, the tribe that causes the civil war, and then the other tribes have to go and fight against Benjamin. They really don't want to. But ultimately, the main reason that Israel drove so much into apostasy and idolatry and wickedness was because of Dan. So Dan's off the list. So Dan is theologically representative of lost people. Okay. If that weren't enough to convince you to take it symbolically, they show up again in chapter 14. Okay, so let me give you my, here's my two evidences. Remember what I said last week. You can agree to disagree with me, but you've got to give your reasons why. And so my first reason is the math. Okay, the 144,000, the symbolic math. Two is the list and what it tells us theologically. But let's let John interpret John. Okay, so turn to Revelation chapter 14. Sometimes if you wait a little while, John will interpret himself and you don't have to wait. So John will bring something up. You're like, what does this mean? Well, if you just read along in Revelation, he may explain what he means, but just you have to wait till you get there. Revelation 14. Is this linear or is it cyclical? They're showing up again. Okay, so Revelation 14, 1 through 4. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Does that sound similar? And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. 
Then the voice I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing on the harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Okay, so what's the first, what's the, what's the first description of them? They'd been redeemed from the earth. Every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Okay, let me ask you a question. Does that mean that the 144,000 are 144,000 literal Jewish virgins that have never had sex, and they and only they are going to get to go to heaven? All of us men that have kids. So sad. They are spiritually referred to as virgins because they've not defiled or polluted themselves with false teaching or idolatry. All throughout the Bible, Israel and the church have been symbolically referred to as virgins. Okay, this would rule out millions of Christian men and women if only virgins were allowed into heaven. You've got this whole idea of um, the virgin daughter of Zion in 2 Kings chapter 19. And um, Lamentations 2.13, Virgin Israel in Jeremiah 18 and Amos 5. Um, 2 Corinthians 11, 2-4, Paul calls the church the virgin. For I, for I feel a divine de- jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. He's talking to the church here. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims Another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one that you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So here are the 144,000, and you've got to assume it's the same group. Yes, Dick. I'm getting a little off subject, but if we're talking about you using the term virgin in this manner, are we still ta- or would you still use the same thing as in the Mary? As in not having been with the Joseph of time and she is a virgin spiritually but not I'm not sure I'm, I know what you're I'm not sure I'm, I understand so, so you're saying that as a virgin in this part symbolically symbolically mm-hmm. I mean that you believe in Jesus and, and you wholeheartedly do it right would you still refer to Mary as the virgin oh Mar- Vir- Mary oh Mary yes yeah not necessarily because she had not had intercourse but yeah, yeah, she was a literal virgin, and there's the literal virgin birth, and she's a one of a kind, the mother of, of Jesus. So I'm not sure I understand I'm what. I'm going to ask you the same thing because we were talking about literal numbers and symbolic right. numbers. Right. So we're, we're talking now. Right. Okay. That's a great question. So, genre, genre, the type of book you're reading determines how you interpret it. Revelation is meant to be taken symbolically. When you read the Gospels where it talks about Mary and the Holy Spirit coming upon her, is there anything in the Gospels that leads you to believe that we're supposed to take that symbolically? Or do you take it at face value? Now, some liberal people will say, you know, the virgin birth's not really, you know, we, we deny that because that's, you know, a miracle and that didn't really happen. Um, Pure, when Paul says, I presented to you as a pure virgin to Christ, is he talking metaphorically or is he talking literally? Metaphorically. metaphorically. Okay, so 
context depends on how you take it. Does that, does that make sense? So when we're talking about the Virgin Mary, it's literal. When Paul here is talking about, I presented the church as a pure virgin, it's metaphorical. And when he's talking here in Revelation, I think it's metaphorical. So, so you have to understand the context. Does that answer your question or does that confuse the waters more? Okay, and also these people follow the Lamb wherever He goes, so they're Christ followers. Um, I'm just going to skip these verses just for the sake of time. Luke nine twenty three and twenty four. You can go back and read that as as well as First Peter two twenty one. Um, also, look at what else it says about them. Verse five: In their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now, does that mean that anybody that lies doesn't get to go to heaven? So if we take this literally, the only people that are ever going to be in heaven are virgins who've never lied. <laughs> a small number of people are going to make it to heaven. Or you say the 144,000 is a symbolic number of those that are pure, those that have not defiled themselves with idolatry, those that follow Christ, those that we would say in our normal vernacular are believers believers in christ okay so let's go back to revelation chapter 7 there are two ways you can interpret this and i want to be fair to both interpretation interpretation number one is it's a literal number of literal ethnic jewish people no more no less than that literal number from those literal tribes that are going to be saved on the earth during a period of tribulation when the church is out of the way and there's a seven-year period of tribulation. Now, where those 12 tribes come from or how they reassemble, you talk about the lost tribes of Israel. So that, that's, that's one of the interpretations. My interpretation, and I, you can take it or leave it, I'm just telling you what I believe, is I take the 144,000 to be a symbolic number mathematically, the list, taken in Revelation chapter 14. It's a composite symbolic picture of both Old and New Testament believers, Jew and Gentile, that comprise the totality of God's people. Okay, I want to stop right there and see if there's any questions. I'm not saying you have to agree with it, but does it make sense? Now, what did John hear? Go back up to verse 4. I heard the number of the sealed. Does he see 144,000 or did he just hear it? Okay, now look at verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Okay, John hears the 144,000, but what does John see right here? Okay, he sees, he, so he sees a great multitude. Now, I'm going to draw a parallel. This is not in your notes, so I'm just trying to show you how you kind of have to work through Revelation to get these images here. Where's my... Okay, so John, what does he do? He hears and he sees... What does he hear? 144,000. 
What does he see? This great multitude. And what's the multitude made up of? All tribes, nations, peoples. Okay, okay, okay. So he hears something and then sees something. Question is, are these, you put an equal sign in there, are these the same people just shown from different perspectives? My view is yes. The 144,000 are the same group of people as the great multitude. This is the perspective of earth. This is the perspective of heaven. But it's the same group of people told in two different ways symbolically. Okay? Now, where else have we heard John hearing something and seeing something? Go back to chapter 5 for a moment. Look at verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and seven seals. What does John hear from the elder? There is a lion from the tribe of Judah. That's what John hears. I hear him telling me, Don't cry because there's a lion from the tribe of Judah. Okay, next verse. Verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. What does Jesus see? A lamb. So what did Jesus see? A lion or a lamb? Yes. Can you put an equal sign between lion and lamb? Is the lion the same person as the lamb? It's what? Jesus. So this little thing that happens in Revelation where John hears something and then sees something, we've seen the pattern that it's the same thing so far. Now you come up to chapter 7, John hears something and he sees something. I'm making the argument that we've already seen this and that what the 144,000 are and what the great multitude are is they're the same thing. They're the saved. The same way as the lion and the lamb were the same. Just told from two different perspectives. Does that make sense? So, who are the 144,000? Well, you can put it this way. The 144,000 are the great multitude from every nation, tribe, and people who are in heaven before Christ dressed in white robes. Now, why is it a great multitude? Yes, go ahead. Sorry, Glenn. Yeah, they're wearing, what are they wearing there? White robes. What does a virgin bride wear on her wedding day? Not a white robe, but a white. What does a white outfit represent? Purity. Okay, so you've got this imagery of we're clothed in white, pure because of Christ. Okay. Great multitude. Where else in the Bible was a great multitude that no man could count, talked about. Abraham. Genesis 15, 5. What did God say to Abraham? He brought him outside. This is God. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So was God taking Abraham outside and saying, Okay, start counting. One, two, there's Polaris, there's three. When, he, when I get to like five million, I can stop. No, what, what was the point? The point was, there's a lot of stars out in the sky. Abraham, you're going to have 
a countless number of offspring. Okay, so a great multitude that no one... When you look at the stars, can you count them? It's a great multitude that no one can count. Okay, Genesis 32, 12. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So the two images that are given to Abraham are stars. Can you count the stars? Can you go on the ocean, you know, the, the beach and start picking up the sand? Like, there's granule number one, there's granule number And after about 50 years, you finally get to a thousand. What's the point? Sand is so vast you can't count it. The stars are so vast you can't count it. Abraham, that's going to be your offspring. Okay, so let me ask you the question. Does this great multitude only apply to ethnic Jews? I guess Was, I've always thought it did. Okay. But it makes me think that probably not. Okay, and let's just, let's just ask the question. When God made the promise to Abraham that you're going to have this offspring, let's go to the New Testament and see how the New Testament interprets that. Okay? So the question is, who is the great multitude that's going to be Abraham's offspring? Is it just Jews only? Or is it a, a more a comprehensive number? Jews and Gentiles. Okay, let's go to Galatians because Paul answers that for us. So Galatians 3.8. I mean, very explicitly Paul answers this. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Pretty clear? Okay. Galatians 3, 13 through 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Clear enough? One more verse. Galatians 3, 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So the answer to the question is, Abraham, you see a great multitude that no one can count. Like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. In Revelation, what John sees is what was promised to Abraham. Read it. Verse 9. After this, look, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Where's that language that no one could number from? Stars, sand. Are they just from the Jews? No, they're from every nation, tribes, peoples, and languages. And they're standing before the angel, clothed in white robes, and they have palm branches in their hands. Now, are, does this mean in heaven we're literally going to be wearing white robes and waving palm branches? I don't know. Or it could be symbolic. What's a, what's a waving of a palm branch for? You remember what happened on Palm Sunday? John 12, 13. It's a symbol of exuberant worship. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now here's where it gets a little bit differences of interpretation when you get to verse 10. Crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so we have the identity of this group. 
Before we go any further, how many are there? A num how many of them are there? A great number that no one could count. How many of them are there? 144,000. Well, which one is it? Is it 144,000 or a number that no one can count? And the answer is yes. Okay, if you take it symbolically, it's the same group. Where are they from? All tribes, nations, peoples. They're Christians that are worshiping the Lord. Okay, now here's where some differences of interpretation come in verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where did they come? So he asked John the question, Okay, who, who are these people and where did they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. I don't know. You know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have come out of the great, the great tribulation. Okay, so question. What did I say was the other view? The other view said these are literal ethnic Jews, literal 144,000, who endured the seven-year Great Tribulation and came out of it. That's one view. The question I have to ask you is this. Do we see any specific number? Do we see any specific number of years given to this time of great tribulation? Do we see anything in this text about seven? What did I say last week about tribulation? We're going through tribulation now. Okay. Is it as intense as it's going to be? Will there be an intensified time of tribulation? Is it necessarily going to be seven years? Maybe. Okay. If you limit this to only those that come out of a seven-year period, I think you're limiting the scope of what John's been saying all along. So what's, his, what's his burden? This is a great number that no one can count from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. This goes back to the promise made to Abraham that's the full number of God's people. So one interpretation says... Okay, here's, here's the one interpretation. Okay, I'll draw, it on the, I'll draw it on the board. It's a popular interpretation. I don't necessarily hold to it, but a lot of people do, and that's fine. Okay, so... Um, Jesus comes back secretly. So he comes back. Remember last week we said he comes back secretly. Nobody knows he's coming back. There's a rapture of the church. Everybody's kind of confused. Where are they? They're all left behind. And then there's this seven-year period on earth of tribulation. And then Jesus comes back at the real second coming. And then you got a thousand-year reign, and then on and on. Okay. Some people view that during this period of seven years, it's a literal 144,000. Jews, and that this great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, that's a separate group. That comprises Gentiles that get saved during the seven-year period of tribulation, and they end up going to heaven. So there's two distinct groups. There's literal Jews 
during the seven-year period of tribulation that are getting saved and have to go through it. And there are a great multitude of Gentiles getting saved through this period of tribulation. And both of these get to, get to heaven. Now, number one, the reason I don't hold to this, you can probably tell why. I don't see a distinction between those two groups of people. The 144,000 and the great multitude I see is the same group of people. Number two, I don't see anything in this text telling me it's seven years. I don't see anything in this text telling me that Christ comes back. So what I think John is seeing is he's seeing the same group of people from the perspective of what's happening on the earth right now. Christians are eternally secure in their salvation, but they're going to go through times of tribulation. And towards the end, there's going to be a great time of tribulation. I don't know how long it's going to be. From the perspective of heaven, there are people that are in heaven right now. And when we get to heaven, we're going to experience the fullness of our salvation as the totality of God's church, all tribes, tongues, people, and nations. Okay. Because what did Jesus say about times of tribulation? I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have what? Tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And then 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, will be persecuted. Now, what was the question at the end of chapter 6? Who can stand on the great day of God's wrath? Answer, how can these stand in the presence of the great Lamb and not get incinerated by His wrath? The answer is in verse 14. What does it say? They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, that does not make any sense. When you go wash your clothes and, and you put, you know, what's that stuff called? OxyClean. You put the OxyClean in there and you put the Tide. What do you want to come out? No stains. You want white. You go to the washing machine and I'm going to wash my nice white robe in blood. Was it going to come out white? Yes, in a sense. It's going to, you're going to come out pure, but you're going to come out with the blood of Christ. It's a symbolism, again, of being washed. And we use a lot of Christian cliches. Like, I mean, we'd probably scare somebody if we walked up on the street and we asked them, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? What? We know what that means. We've grown up in church. It's a metaphor. Isaiah 1.18 Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What's the image there? Our sin is stained with you know, darkness, and Jesus comes and saves us and makes us white. Um, Hebrews 9.14, talking about the blood of Christ, how much more... Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself with blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? Christ's blood purifies us. And then 1 John 1, 7, But if we walk in the light as He's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Again, it's a metaphor. Now, in our time together here in the last 20 minutes or so, I want us to look at what heaven will be like.
do you realize that we don't have a lot of teaching on what heaven's going to be like? But right here, you've got, some, you've got three things that tell us what we're going to be doing in heaven or what heaven's going to be like. Okay, so look at verse 15 through 17. Therefore they, who's the they? The great multitude, those who've washed their robes in white, believers, us. They are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Okay, so this is a picture of what we're going to experience in heaven metaphorically. Okay, so number one, we will serve Jesus day and night in His temple. Heaven's not going to be like what you see in the cartoons where you're sitting with a toga on a cloud playing a harp for all eternity. You're just kind of sitting there. What does it say there? We're serving God. Now, I don't, don't ask me what that looks like. Are you serving God now? Hopefully. In heaven, you're going to perfectly serve the Lord. I don't know what that looks like. But I'm assuming that it's going to be somewhat of a picture of how we've served each other here. We're going to love and encourage, and I'm not sure if we're going to have spiritual gifts in heaven because we're going to be perfect. I don't know about that. But it says here we're going to serve God day and night in His temple. Okay? And we will be sheltered by His presence. Does your translation say anything different at the end of verse 15 besides sheltered? Does, does any of your translations say he will spread his tent over you? Literally, in the original language, it says God will spread his tent over us. Now, what, what imagery should that remind us of, of a tent being spread over us? What was the tent that was in the wilderness? The tabernacle was the portable tent. And what rested on the, at the end of Exodus, we'll get there eventually. We're only in chapter 3. So who knows how long it's going to take us to get to the very end of Exodus. But at the very end of Exodus, here's how the book of Exodus ends. They've built the tabernacle. They've built the tent. The tent is the place where God dwells. His Shekinah glory comes and rests on the tent. So Exodus 40, 34 through 38 then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." So for an Old Testament believer, a picture of a tent with fire at night and smoke during the day was the ultimate symbol of that's the ultimate presence of God that nobody can enter. Moses was allowed to enter it. The high priest was allowed to enter it only on one day of the year. Could average Joe Israelite walk into the tent of meeting and say, hey, God, I'm here. Let's have fun. He would get incinerated. He could, but he'd get incinerated. 
God in heaven will spread his tent over us, which means that we will have unfettered, holy, ongoing, permanent access to the very throne room of God without fear of ever having to be smitten. We will be under his care. We will be in his presence. We'll be in his glory. What every Israelite longed to experience but was never allowed to in the Old Testament. And then it says, they'll, sh- they'll hunger no more. They will thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. And that would mean a lot to people that lived in the desert. These desert people, ancient Middle Eastern people that were always in fear of you know, sandstorms and scorching heat. And uh, a lot of this imagery comes from the Old Testament. Isaiah 25, 8, He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And then Isaiah 49, 10, They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them for He who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water He will guide them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the, Adam and Eve in paradise. So the, you guys know the story of the Bible, right? Beginning, middle, beginning. How does the Bible start? In a garden. With the tree of life. In perfect fellowship. Just two people. How does the Bible end? In heaven. With the tree of life. Not just two people, but all of God's redeemed people living a perfect existence. So the Bible's not beginning, middle, end. It's beginning, middle, beginning. <laughs> it goes back to the way the Garden of Eden, but even greater than the Garden of Eden because it's, it's even more glorious. And God says in Ezekiel 37, 27, My dwelling place, my tent, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they'll be my people. And then Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. But I think the most, the most powerful imagery here is in verse 17. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tears from their eyes. Now, look at the contrast. How does, verse, how does chapter 7 end? Jesus, as the Lamb, is leading His people to springs of living water. How does the end of chapter 6 begin? end? The people are calling out to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of His wrath has come and who can stand? What's the picture of those who are believers? In heaven, Jesus is our shepherd. The picture of those who were lost... On that day of judgment, Jesus is not a shepherd leading them to streams of living water. He's coming in wrath and judgment for the lost. And that metaphor of Jesus being a shepherd, obviously it's all over the Bible. John 10, 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Psalm 23, 1, the famous psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me by by green pastures and, and waters. Um, Isaiah 40, 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Ezekiel 34:23. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them. He shall be feed them and be their 
shepherd. Okay. And we're going to be guided to no longer hunger, no longer thirst. We're going to have living water. Psalm 36, 8 through 9, that they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the rivers of your delight. For with you is the fountain of life. In your delight do we see light. Goodness sakes, there's a lot of verses here. Um, let me, you can look at those verses, Isaiah 55, um, John 4. Let's just look down at John 7, 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So all of these imageries come from the Old Testament, come from Jesus being shepherd. But what I want to do, remember what I said. Revelation is the second exodus, the greater exodus. What's the story of Exodus? Jewish people in slavery and God delivering them. Okay? Think about that for a moment. What's the Exodus parallel to Revelation chapter 7? The great multitude of all tribes comes out of a great trial which is similar to the Israelites coming out of a great trial in Egypt as slaves. What was the great tribulation for the, Egypt, for the Israelites in Egypt? Egypt. <laughs> okay, they were slaves. They were afflicted, as Exodus 4.31 says. So who came out of the great tribulation in the Old Testament? The Jews, the Hebrews, the Israelites. Okay, how they came out. How did they come out? Through the blood of the Passover lamb. Okay. What do the people in heaven, back up in verse 15, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. They've washed their robes and made them white. What do the Israelites have to do before they receive the Ten Commandments at the base of Mount Sinai? They wash their garments. Exodus 19.10 the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. What do they wash their garments in? Back in verse 14, the blood of the lamb. Israel was sprinkled with blood from a lamb. In Exodus 24, 8, and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. At the end of Exodus, what does God instruct the nation to do? Build a tent for him to dwell in. What does God do in verse 15? God shelters them with the tent of his presence. In the wilderness, what does God provide for Israel? Does he give them food? Does he give them water? Does he give them shelter? Yes, he does all that, just the way that we will never hunger or thirst and we'll be protected. So John sees the events and imagery in Exodus that were very specific to Israel as being fulfilled in heaven to the totality of God's people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. So let's recap chapter 7. Chapter 7 is specifically here to show us from two vantage points, earth and heaven, that on earth we are eternally secure, sealed by the Holy Spirit, righteous in Christ, 
and victorious through Him while we struggle in times of tribulation on this earth. No matter what we go through on this earth, we have salvation, we're sealed, we're eternally secure, we've washed our robes in the blood of the Lamb, we're, we're God's people. No matter what we go through, and it can be difficult on this earth. In heaven, our final destination, we get to await unending worship and fellowship with Jesus as our great shepherd in His heavenly temple. And we're also reminded that the number of God's people is a huge, countless, multi-ethnic assembly of both Jews and Gentiles who've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. So how did chapter 6 end? I keep asking that question with the penetrating question, who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? What's the answer to that question? Chapter 7, who's the identity of the people that can stand on the day of the wrath? The 144,000, which is also known as what? The multitude that no one could count from all tribes, nations, and people. So let me end with Romans, and then we can maybe have a few minutes for questions. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what's the takeaway from chapter 7? No matter what you experience on this earth, whether it's tribulation, whether it's persecution, whether it's difficulties, no matter what it is that comes against you, you're more than conquerors through Christ who loved you and nothing can separate Him from, your, from, from His love. You're sealed. You're white as snow. You have Christ on your side. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. They may take away anything they may want to take away from you, but the one thing they can't take away is they can't separate you from the love of Christ. And when we get to heaven, all the things that we dealt with on this earth that for lack of a better term were terrible, cruddy, bad, we will have Jesus as our shepherd. We will not have to ever worry about crying or food or any of those things. We'll be in His presence forever and He will lead us to those living waters and wipe away every tear from our eye. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. So questions or comments? So when you were talking about whether we you're just talking about Revelation. I'm talking about the book of Revelation, yeah. Because depending on the genre, and what I mean by genre, depending on the style so like when you, when you sit down and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read them at face value as a narrative telling the story of Jesus. Now when you get to a parable, 
The kingdom of heaven is like. Do you start, do you shift the way you read when you get to a parable? Yeah, because you're meant to take a parable a little bit symbolically. But when it says Jesus went into the, the villages of Capernaum and began preaching and teaching and healing the sick, do you take that symbolically or do you take, no. So the context will determine. Okay, when you read Paul's letters and he's laying out theology and doctrine, and do you take that symbolically or do you take it at face value? When you read the Psalms, it's poetry. Is it meant to be taken overly literally or is a lot of it metaphorical and poetic language? Poetic. Proverbs, a little bit more poetic. Okay? When you get to the law, like you're reading the Ten Commandments, definitely not metaphorical. It's pretty straightforward, right? So when you get to Revelation, which is apocalyptic literature, a lot of symbolism, a lot of visions, because of the nature of the type of literature it is, it, it, you, you need to read it symbolically. That's just my, my opinion. Does that, does that make sense, Sue? Other questions? We've got a few more minutes. Do we ever find out why Joseph, the present Joseph, was No, because here's the thing. Sometimes the Bible reports. Sometimes the Bible reports information. Sometimes the Bible lists something, but it doesn't give you any information as to why. There's no verse later on that says, oh, by the way, Joseph's added because of this. It's just, it's there. That list is there to make us go, like Scooby-Doo. Huh? I may need a Scooby snack to figure this one out. I mean, it's like it's there to make you be like, okay, there, there's some. I think it's wrong to make you stop and say there's something weird about this that makes me step back and have to figure out what this is all about. If you're really tracking the, the tribes and the numbers, does that make sense? So sometimes the Bible doesn't give you a reason. It just so like especially like an Old Testament story, it may just report what happened and never tell you the details you want to know. It just reports it for you. So I saw a hand. No hand? All right. Guys, brains ready to explode tonight? I hope I went slow, hope I went slow enough because this, this is like deep. This is like you come at, after a long day's work and you're like, man, that's the last thing I want to hear about is math and symbolism and all this kind of crazy stuff. But you came to Revelation, so welcome to that world. All right, let's pray and be encouraged. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, no matter how we may um, feebly and weakly try to understand chapter 7, the one thing we do know for sure is that when we're in heaven with you as our Savior, Jesus, it's going to be glorious and wonderful. Jesus, you will be our shepherd. There will be no more crying, no more tears. Um, all the pain and all the sickness and all the heartache we experience on this earth, you will take away. And Lord, we um, are so thankful that you've saved us, you've sealed us with the Holy Spirit, you've washed us in your blood, uh, you've given us that, that security that we can never be taken from your hand. So Lord, help us to go out this week and live in the joy of that security and live in the anticipation of our future home with you in heaven. And let that be motivation for us to have joy as we live our Christian lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.